0: I don't want to share someone else's thoughts. I want to create my own original thoughts. I want to create my own original solutions. I want to look at situations and come up with my own phrasing, my own words, and do it my way. This is. The John Taffer Podcast. Shut it down. Hello, hello, I'm John Taffer. This is the John Taffer Podcast. It's been a little while since we've done one of these, Corey, but we're back, aren't we? We are, I'm excited. Yeah, you know, the pandemic knocked us off a little bit. Taffer's Tavern has kept me really busy uh, these past few months. Those of you who don't know, we've opened Taffer's Tavern. We opened in Alpharetta, Georgia. We're now open in Watertown, Boston, in Massachusetts. We're open in downtown Washington, D.C., We're in a Mercedes-Benz arena. We're opening in Alabama soon, Wisconsin soon. And, Corey, I'm saying I'm going to guess we're about two to three weeks away from a big announcement about Las Vegas. I'm excited. Yeah, Tavern's doing really, really well. I'm really, really, really excited about it. And I appreciate all of those who have been to the Tavern. So I got a funny story for you, Corey. About two and a half, three years ago, I'm at Taffer's Tavern. And, you know, in Bar Rescue, I've now done 240 episodes. I got to create new cocktails every episode. Right. And I work with my mixologists who are great, people like Rob Floyd, Phil Wills, You know, great mixologists around me, and we create all these recipes. And I'm out in, 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 in Alpharetta, and, and I'm trying to come up with something new to do for Bar Rescue, and I took a plastic sous vide bag that you cook in, okay, and I filled it with bourbon, and then I took brown butter out of a frying pan, and I poured it in this plastic bag, I sealed it, and I put it in hot water at about 150 degrees, and I let it sit for hours. I then took the bag of the whiskey and the brown butter out of the hot water, put it in a walk-in refrigerator, let it cool. The butter coagulated on top, scooped it off, poured it in a coffee filter, believe it or not. It was a little cloudy, Mm -hmm. the whiskey, but but it was freaking delicious. It was unbelievable. So we decided we're going to put it in a cocktail called the Campfire. So we decided we were going to put it in a cocktail called the Campfire, and uh, we did. And Corey, was selling a 1,000 campfires a month. So now this is two years ago. We're selling them like crazy. Everybody's asking for this browned butter bourbon. Well, I've never experienced anything like this before. So I went to a lab with Flavor Labs, and I started working with some great partners, and we created Taffer's Browned Butter Bourbon. Beautiful. And I got a bottle right in my hand. So... The process is incredibly difficult. So first you got to come up with the blend of the bourbon. Then you got to come up with the blend of the brown butter flavoring. And I don't want it to be sweet. That's not what it's about. It's a whiskey. Right. I want it to be a bourbon. I want it to taste like it with the brown butter flavoring. But once that's done, then you got to have a bottling company put it together. You got to do all the packaging, all the lic- all the licensing and federal regulations. Then you need a bottle. Try to get a bottle these days post-COVID <laughs> on supply right, yeah. side. You can't get glass. Then you have to design your label. You have to get the label approved by the federal government. Then you got to design your box. So now you have the the product, the bottle, the label, and the box. And you have all the regulations and you got your formula. Well, then you got to raise a whole bunch of money to produce the product, bottle the product, get it into warehouses, then start to ship it out to distributors around the country. And after all that... Doesn't mean one person's gonna even ask for it. So (laughs) then you gotta market it. You gotta market it to distributors, market it to consumers, create cocktails and recipes that are gonna cause people to wanna try it and see how delicious it is. So it's been a crazy two and a half years putting Taffers brown butter bourbon together. And I gotta tell you, I didn't want to name it Taffers. You know, I looked at all sorts of other names, but the market research said we should call it Taffers. And i didn't want it to be about taffer i wanted it to be about the bourbon because it's so freaking good so we launched it in boston about a month ago. We're now in 500 accounts all over the Boston area. We're launching it in Vegas in about two weeks, but we're already in a bunch of liquor stores here in Vegas. And then after the test markets in Boston and Las Vegas, we go national, and I'm pretty darn excited about wow. it.
1: Great, Sean. And That's what's awesome.
0: amazing, Corey, is is it's is it, it's great in an old-fashioned. It's great in a mixed cocktail. Mm-hmm. I just stumbled on something. I never thought I'd be in a bourbon business. Yeah. And I'm not in a bourbon business. I created this flavor that I loved so much that we felt we had to produce it. So that's what's been going on. It's been crazy with uh, all the work to put together all the elements of brown butter bourbon and get it to market. And as we're doing this, of course, who calls? Paramount. Oh, okay. And they say, John, we'd like to talk about more bar rescues. And I must tell you, and I don't think I've ever said this to the audience before, but uh, every year a bar rescue, I've thought, is the last one. These past four years, Corey, every year, Corey, I thought we're never going to do it. That's it. It's going to end this year. It's going to end this year. It never ends. So it's the like ratings a have been. Yeah, the, it is. It's almost like <laughs> the end of the Every time I get out, they pull me back in. So this year, the network has asked me to do two more years. A- and uh, so we've put that together. We're going to start production in about 60, 90 days or so. So there's a lot more bar rescues coming this year. And I'm pretty darn excited about that. Wow. So awesome. so uh, between Taffer's Tavern, Brown Butter Bourbon, and Bar Rescue, it's going to be a pretty darn busy year.
1: Well, so, and now some podcasts if we can fit them in there, right? Yep.
0: <laughs> so I want to do something cool on the next podcast. Everybody's been talking about this, this uh, AI and chat and all this kind of stuff. I would love to put into the AI, and this is a reason to listen to the next podcast, give me a script for John Taffer's podcast. I wonder what it would do. Oh, yeah, we can do that. I've never done a scripted podcast before, Mm -hmm. and I probably won't, but I would love to see what chat, was the chat GPS? Or what if the chat GPT? Mm GPT. Or what if the guest is AI? What if the guest, ooh, so what if he's my guest? Right. And I ask him questions. (laughs) I'd like to ask him questions about you, Corey. I'd love to see what he comes up with. All right, we'll see. (laughs) But it's interesting, and I'm wondering really how much media is all GBT now that we don't know about. Mm-hmm. And we know that BuzzFeed just got rid of their writers and they're strictly AI now. Wow. So there's no humans involved in that content, I yeah. believe, over there now, and a lot of companies are going in that direction. So I wonder, do we have the right to know if it's AI or a human being who's writing and talking to, to us? Yeah, I yeah, wonder. I mean, but how would you know? Well, I wonder, should there be a regulation that yeah. says that, that you need to know? Mm-hmm. I mean, a, a milk container says milk. If, yeah, it, right. if it doesn't say milk, then it's not a milk. Yeah. So, so do we have a right to know? And I wonder if it makes a difference. If I was talking to a human being or talking to AI, would it make a difference in the things that I'd say and what I would do? And do I really want to know the answer to that question? I think it's yes. But AI is in everything. Yeah. You know, and when, when we think about what's, how it's impacting every aspect of our lives, it's a little scary. I mean, when, when Musk says, we got to stop this for six months and sit down and have a moratorium, we've all seen the movies and heard the stories of yeah, AI taking the over part. the world. And Musk said something that was pretty simple. You just need a hard shutoff switch. Mm. You just need to be able to turn the thing off and kill the power to it. That's right. all it takes. Right. But it might be able to find out ways to bypass that and bring power in through other channels and stuff. It's fascinating, and I'm guessing the sci-fi writers are probably going crazy with the next <laughs> level of, of AI movies. But I'd be less than honest, Corey, if I didn't tell you. It bothers me. I worry about it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. You know, even with things like sports betting, I mean, now AI is probably analyzing every player, the weather, the wind direction, the height of the stadium, the positioning of the sun. I mean, think about this, the whole predictability of sports with AI. Right. And then
1: where does it draw the line between telling me if that team's going to win or not?
0: That's right. So, so, So are you disadvantaged now? right? Going against a sports betting thing because they have AI intelligence and you don't. And then I think about the stock market, right? And that too, all this AI stuff and, you know, uh, am I disadvantaged as a human being in the stock market (laughs) now without AI? And there's so many of these things that I think about now that I wonder, boy, are we the human race going to be disadvantaged to computers in two or three years? It's sort of going in that direction. It is. So it almost doesn't matter what room we walk into. If there's a computer in a room, you're not the smartest guy in a room anymore. <laughs> no, you're not. So it's a, yeah. it's going to be a very interesting couple of years. And then I read another article about how AI could affect the election, mm. right? And candidates can use AI. So if you go on a social media or something, AI is going to tell you exactly what you want to hear. If I go on, it's going to tell me exactly what I want to hear. So I wonder if it isn't the voice of the candidate and it's AI, you know, how truthful it becomes. And then I heard the ultimate and I, I read this the other day. So people are using AI. They go to your Facebook or your, one of your social media pages, Corey, they get a sample of your voice off one of your videos. Okay. They run it through AI. AI almost does an oscilloscope kind of thing. recreates your voice. I then have AI call your mother and say, this is Corey, I'm in a jam, wire me a $1,000. Jeez. Your mother thinks she's talking to you. It duplicates your voice and your mannerisms perfectly. So now what's happening, and I read this just the other day, that there's a real criminal uh, 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 trend now using voice recognition and AI to call people and do phone scams. Yeah. So that means, and think about this, if I call you and I say, hey, Corey, and you hear my voice, you say, hey, hey, John. Oh,
1: hey John. Hey, John, yeah.
0: That might not be me. So that's getting pretty deep. So now they can take our face, right? Create a duplicate mm-hmm. image of us. Yeah. Create a duplicate voice of us. So if you're a celebrity yeah. or you're a banker or you're somebody who has a public persona, you could be destroyed just with a sample of your face, a sample of your voice and AI technology can have you do or say anything today and put it out there. And now you have to defend it. And that's horrifying. Yeah. You know, when you think about the fact that, you know, people are challenged today for crimes that they're not convicted on, lives are ruined uh, for people who aren't even convicted of things. Think about when AI creates complete false scenarios. So it's interesting. And technology today is so fascinating. And, you know, I'm a Las Vegas guy. I love Las Vegas. I love gaming. I love the science of gaming. I love playing cards and understanding the odds and all of that. And I love sports. People know me. I love my hockey and my sports. And I think about how technology, AI and sports are all blending together to create this whole new universe of products and such. I thought to myself, it would be really cool to get Matt Kalish on the podcast. So Matt is the founder and one of the creators and owners of DraftKings. And DraftKings does exactly that. And that's why I'm so fascinated by it. They take AI and technology, they take sports betting, and they take the whole concept of drafts, right, and fantasy football and fantasy leagues, and they put it all together in a technology package that's unbelievably successful. And it's when you see the blending of technology and sports and these things in an entertainment envelope, it's fascinating. You know, Amazon did it with products right they put products delivery all of that technology based but sports and entertainment nobody's mastered it yet mm-hmm. of really combining them so that you're sitting home watching sports on tv and you're betting through your own television oh, yeah. system Crazy. at home as you're watching the sports but it's going to happen and AI is probably going to get us there so when i come back i'm going to be with matt kalish of draft kings i got a lot of questions about technology sports where it's going so don't go away i'll be right back Matt, I am fascinated by technology. I live in Las Vegas, so I'm fascinated by gaming. I'm a brand marketing consumer guy. So I am fascinated by you and your business model and DraftKings and how it all came together. Because really, you're managing technology consumer marketing, obviously, as well as a a, a key player in the uh, gaming industry. So when I look at what you've accomplished and how you've grown your company, I've really looked forward to talking with you today. A couple of quick questions. Let's go back to when you were a young guy, young little Matt, were you always interested in sports? Were you a big sports fan when you were young?
1: I was. Yeah. I was always into at different points, different sports, but I remember, um, You know, it wasn't necessarily a a hometown thing when I was super young. I got into the Cowboys, into, um, you know, the Phoenix Suns with Charles Barkley. And I would watch almost anything in the world of sports. And, you know, by the time I got a little older in high school, I started really closely following the local Boston teams, you know, that were in my backyard. Um, My family was military. They weren't necessarily like we didn't have a lot of money going around, didn't get to go to a lot of games in person. Uh, However, I was following, you know, Paul Pierce and Antoine Walker and all the Celtics teams. Yeah. Uh, And then as I got into distance running baseball more and more, my track team would talk about baseball, got into fantasy, and, you know, just kept getting deeper and deeper. So sports was in your DNA
0: then. It was obviously a large part of your life when you were younger growing up.
1: It really was. Yeah. And I I played a good amount of different sports. I did wrestling, football, distance running was the thing I was most uh, talented in. Wow.
0: Yeah. So, so uh, uh, when the whole gaming industry has so exploded, and I was looking at some statistics, uh, these you probably know really, really well, Matt, but global sports betting markets now at about 156 billion. And when you take a look at it in, in 2024, football should account for about 50% of that, or, or give or take about 75 to 80 billion in just football betting. Is that a number that you thought years ago would come to fruition, or does that number blow you away?
1: It wasn't until pretty recently that even the idea of the US market opening up for sports betting came to life. That late 2017 was really the first time that uh, option became available because of the sports, uh, it's the PASPA repeal case in the yep. Supreme Court. Really, that was the blocker. So, New Jersey wanted to open up the market. They pursued this case all the way to the Supreme Court. It was May of 2018 when it became obvious that the U.S. would start opening up. And that's clearly the biggest market in the world. So I think it grew overnight, uh, yeah. what you'd consider the market cap of sports gambling throughout the world. Yeah.
0: So DraftKings, it existed prior to that, correct?
1: Yeah. The heritage of DraftKings really came from this idea of in fantasy sports, everybody loves doing the draft. They like, you know, making those predictions, building their team. After the draft, it's much more passive. You're building some some uh, lineups, making decisions, but you've made the core decisions by drafting who you did up front, you know? Yep. Yep. And that was always everyone's favorite part. So we wanted to build that experience of like, if every day you could draft, if there's much more rapid gratification, faster settlement, uh, so we started building this platform around one day length fantasy sports or one week length in the case of you know golf or football. And that really allowed people to, to make lots of drafts. They could make fresh decisions every day. If you're traveling or on vacation or something, you could take a day or a week off. Uh, no penalty to that either. So it had this different value prop that I thought was... Um, much more consistent with people's increasingly short attention spans yeah. and whatever. And then also there was this idea of um, a lot of the leaders in fantasy were free to play games on ESPN or Yahoo or office leagues that you might do. So there's really no great way to get skin in the game in a meaningful way. Like you couldn't win, for example, like large prizes or right. compete with friends very easily for yeah. money. And so there was a lot of interest, we believed in the U.S., tens of millions of people we thought were skin-in-the-game sports fans who didn't want to watch, they want to, like, predict things that uh, and and stand to gain if they're right.
0: Many years ago in the bar business, I'm going back like 20 years ago, Matt, there was a game called QB7, and you had a little handheld player, and what you did is you watched a football game in real time, and before each play, you would predict that one play, Pass, left, blah, you know, whatever it would be. And you'd score yep. points and you'd compete nationally and stuff. It was always remarkable to me the fun people had predicting this and how wrong people typically were when they predicted it. I think the genius of DraftKings, and you just said it, was you looked at the best part of the whole draft football experience, fantasy football experience, and said, the best part is the draft. In other fantasy leagues, I do my draft. I'm stuck with it all season. If it isn't working for me, I just got to lick my wounds and live with it, right? That's the way the season goes. With you, I get to reinvent my team, and I get to do what's most exciting every week, every time I play. I'm guessing that became the greatest asset of your offering, would you say? Is that the single most important aspect to your consumer success?
1: Yeah, we identified this customer that we thought existed in the us it wasn't really served in a meaningful way uh, mainly due to just not a lot of offerings being available in the us not a lot being sort of legal regulated at that time but we knew that there was tens of millions of people who wanted to make predictions put something on the line and compete to win real money and the vast majority of our customers aren't putting tons of money in 25 cent games are About 20% of our audience never plays anything bigger than that. You know, $3 is our most common uh, entry point during football season. Our biggest game with the most players is $3. And there's certainly people, like if you go to the casino, you'll see the people in the high limit room going, you know, tons and tons of money. Yep. So there's a whole spectrum there, but um, everybody has this thing in common, which is the same DNA of like, I want to predict, see if I'm right, stand to gain something if I'm right. Yeah. It's competitive. It's um. It feels good to get that gratification. And often things don't go well and you have to take the L and it's good for humility too, I guess. Absolutely. <laughs> like we how right learn how to lose and learn how to win. learn from it. Yep.
0: Yep. So, you yeah, know, it's interesting. Yeah, when I definitely. looked at some other numbers, I noticed that about in 2020, about 13% of online sports bettors said they place the bet at least once a month. I'm guessing you're a statistical nut and you know everything about the behavior patterns. How often does a typical customer bet on your site, would you say, on a monthly basis? Is it, is it's it all, once? all over the map, yeah. So there's no yeah, average what we amount? see is there's,
1: There is averages, but sometimes the averages can be a little misleading. You know, the main behaviors we see are there's a lot of home team support. So you'll see people that come and bet, um, for example, every Celtics game, they want to back the Celtics or Yankees in New York. So there's a lot of homerism where people are supporting home teams and that's one cohort um there's a lot of people who are big uh followers of a specific sport and they just like make lots of bets within one little lane and then there's some people who are betting whatever's next you know they open the app what's live right now you know make predictions and so it's less about passion for the game but it's more about just the engagement of like oh i wasn't going to watch this but you know since i can make some bets predict it you yeah. i want to watch now it's something to do right mm-hmm. and i would say that those are the th- three biggest chunks the three biggest types of behavior that we see you
0: know years ago i ran a resort upstate new york and we were supposed to get gaming this many years ago and we were told we're going to get gaming the state legislature is going to vote for it so hotels like mine and others went out we bought the gaming tables we adjusted our convention center rooms we were ready to pull that trigger and go the minute they voted but they never did they never did. Did you see the betting coming and were you able to prepare for it? Because obviously the federal law sort of indicated it's going to happen. So did you start investing at that point, waiting for one of the states to jump? Only at the point where
1: we saw the window uh with this Supreme Court case, mm-hmm. it became clear that that had a really good opportunity, Yeah, because... Yep. A lot of people who are, you know, the scholars, the people that study these things, I'm certainly no legal expert, but what we were hearing was this is probably not constitutional. You know, the essence of um, of PASPA was really that there was four states that could offer legal regulated sports betting, which were like Nevada, Montana, Delaware, you know, and then no one else could ever regulate and open that uh, market in their state. And the people were saying the, the educated people in the space were basically saying, like, the federal government can't differentially treat states, right. you know, that way. You can't have four states who can do something, and, and right. that's unconstitutional. Can't. So, yeah, so that was the idea. And we started investing in the platform when the case was taken by the Supreme Court because we thought it was a good enough chance that it would break that direction. And Uh, sure enough by May, 2018, you know, that decision had come down and then New Jersey was immediately ready to pass the regulation. We were live. We took our first bet in August. It was August 1st of 2018, about three or four months after Supreme court ruled. But we had been working for a year, year and a half before that in anticipation of that moment. So we were first to market due to that.
0: I got a kick out of the fact that you launched in Watertown, Massachusetts. Because I have a Taffer's Tavern there in Watertown at Arsenal Yards right there. So, yes, indeed. So you're like that classic yep. Stephen Jobs-ish types of story. Your company started in your garage. Now, when you when you started this in a garage, would you say you had a technical orientation, a marketing orientation? And how did you and your partners you know, assume your roles, if you will? And I'm speaking to entrepreneurs out there mark that have an idea like you did and maybe it involves technology and marketing and consumer behavior like yours how did you get all the pieces put together in those early days
1: it took maybe six months to figure out the exact lanes i mean my partners jason robbins and paul lieberman we did nights and weekends for months and months uh while we had a corporate job in 2011 and the early part of 2012 and a lot of that early days was we were writing some uh, some code, a prototype of the site, trying to figure out if we wanted to raise money. Uh, and in those early days, because um, it was sort of like my original idea, and I pulled these uh, this little group together. You know, um, I felt like I was captaining a lot of it. But once we started going down a path of you know, we want to raise money. We want to go out to to uh, build a deck, go talk to VCs, yep. try to Hit the um, capital markets, get a little money in the bank to quit our jobs and go after this. Yeah. Jason Robbins, clear CEO of the company, he was um, exceptional, like wonderful networker, really, really gifted communicator, um, really gifted with relationships and and like personal CRM. You know, an example would be. We never took a meeting without asking who else should I talk to you know so' we'd take a meeting get three more names then those three would turn into nine and then it would be 27. Wow. I think by the time we talked to VC number 41 who was Ryan Moore at a at a venture place called accomplice uh, today it's called accomplice at the time it was Atlas Venture in Boston. Uh, It was about our 40th pitch that we got an offer for our seed, uh, about a million dollars of seed funding. And that was all just Jason putting it on his back, going out, networking. We would go into the pitch and do the demo. Paul and I were much more, um, Paul, tech and product. And I was much more on the uh, kind of what is the product we're building, how it Mm -hmm. operates, who's the customer, the marketing, you know, that kind of uh, uh, engagement aspect of it. And so I've always thought of my role as more the uh, the closest to the customer, the game design, the game master, so to speak. Paul's a really, really talented engineer and uh, has built what is a tremendous team really around. I, I would compare it to any big tech company that you'll find out in Silicon Valley, like exceptional in terms of the quality of the tech, uh, the talent we have. Yeah.
0: You know, everybody goes into companies and and everybody says, and if you don't say as an entrepreneur, you should, how do I exit? Right. I want to come in. I want to build this company. I want that company to build value. But at some point I want to exit. I want to cash out. I want to enjoy my life. So when you look at a company like yours, you guys have the ultimate. I mean, you had an opportunity to go public. And I took a company public many, many years ago. That's a big hurdle in financial reporting and compliance and very, very difficult step for a company to take. How did you find that? Were you, Did you find that to be a tedious process? Did you find it to be an easy process? And as a public company, do you find that it's making your operations, your ability to operate easier or tougher? Because I have friends that have reversed and gone private as well. What is your feeling being in the betting business and in the public capital space at the same time in the public markets? Well, it definitely broadens your stakeholders. I mean, you have a lot more.
1: Yep. Um, when you're private, you're really just trying to make sure that the business is sustainable, that you're able to, to fund the plans that you want to do, that you have enough support. Um, enough available capital, all of that. We raised over time prior to going public like a very meaningful amount of money, hundreds of millions of dollars on the private markets through, I believe it was something like six or seven funding rounds. We raised a Series E. Um,
0: So you diluted yourselves pretty heavily then in that process, I would think.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things that Jason, Paul and I have always believed is if you can get, well, two things really. One is if you can add people around the table who are helpful, it's always worth giving up some ownership, And that's probably number one thing that I've noticed with early stage founders or people that have good ideas, pretty good teams, but don't quite get there is a little too protective. Maybe over, it's not that different to have 90% of like a mid-sized company or have 5% of a giant company. You know, it's really not, right? And um Being able to open the tent, we've always been very welcoming to anybody that we thought could help us and we'd want them aligned with us. So the best way to do that, we're often, you know, relationships as advisors or in our company, we give every single employee stock. So that's another version of this where we're not hoarding and trying to, you know, hold all of the ownership in the company. We want to make sure that we build something big and that everyone shares in that. And Going public though, now you're in a world where there's a lot of retail investors, like tens or hundreds of thousands mm-hmm. of people own some of the stock. So now you have this world of everybody cares much more so than ever before. Um, So I definitely think that that creates a lot more like attention towards how the stock is performing versus mm-hmm. how the company fundamentally is performing right. and, and there it can, can be, a be distracting if not careful.
0: And there can be a difference between yeah. those two, obviously. One is somewhat sector and market-driven, whereas the other is strictly uh, uh, driven on the performance of the company. You know what I love about your company is is uh, uh, not only your history, how you've evolved, but now you're taking it to the next level. So help me understand. I'm a huge hockey fan, Matt, big-time hockey fan. I'm a Knights fan here in Vegas. And... Talk to me about your league relationships now, because now you're really expanding in the way you're going at business. So what does a league relationship mean to DraftKings, for example, an NHL relationship? There's a
1: lot of flavors to that. And our first league deal was 2013 with Major League Baseball, about a year after we launched, year and a half after we launched. And it was actually the first league deal anybody had done in fantasy or real money gaming. And fascinating like the the major league baseball the leadership like bob bowman at the time and some of the people behind uh advanced media at baseball really understood that engagement is super important especially in a sport like baseball where maybe it's declining a bit in interest it's seen as a little bit slow not as modern in terms of um like how many people are sitting there watching a whole baseball game just for fun. It's less than it used
0: to be for sure. And so they saw the value in engagement. I get it. It makes perfect sense. You're creating a new relevancy for the game in your own universe in essence.
1: Yeah. I was going to kind of continue on the baseball piece. Like as, as we built more, as we grew the business, as we had more data on how customers engage with the game, Baseball is kind of the first one to move on it, but everybody saw the same dynamic, which is people watching, say, basketball, football, whatever. More people tune in, they're watching more games, they're watching for much longer, uh, and it's much more steady in terms of, like, the attention span, the engagement. And uh, fantasy really was that from 2013 through sports betting getting passed in 2018, all of the leagues got behind it heavily, a lot of the teams as well. And It really came from that idea, though, of this is something that our fans want. It's tremendously popular, really, like the issue of sports betting, fantasy. The vast, vast majority of people who love sports think that that should be an offering that's available, that's legal, regulated, uh, and it really drives a lot of behavior. So I think that's the mutual, like the league relationship really comes down to that idea of they understand that that's what fans want. We understand that, you know, we're in a great
0: position to drive that value for the league. Yep, yeah, that makes perfect sense and it's just all about engagement. Uh uh, uh certainly and yeah. you can take a game that maybe is a little tired and you can add energy to it, add relevancy to it. And then you look at a baseball, you have a pretty young audience compared to other uh uh, uh endeavors. So you're bringing a vibrant audience, uh, a more youthful audience, 18 to 30 typically. Uh, uh, in your betting platform, which is exciting for these leagues also, I would think. Absolutely. Yeah, we have,
1: whew, I would say, generally speaking, like over-index on education, on income, on um, uh, it's the early adopters a lot of the time too, right? The people that play on DraftKings are often like the first one to jump on board with a new trend. Like if you think about during COVID when a lot of people's behavior changed a lot, stuff like uh, day trading stocks became popular, crypto, um, sports card or NFT or whatever, all these different things that people were doing during COVID when they had to change behavior. It was really the DraftKings customer, like we noticed, were always the first mover on any of these trends. You know, you would see uh, instead of when sports were paused, you know, instead of sports, it would be Something like, oh, I'm going to buy sports cards or speculate on stock or whatever, you know. And so it's something that it's a thought leader. It's somebody that is really a a driver of culture. And, um, yeah, being on the right side of our audience, I think, is often a good sign. Like if you see people in the DraftKings halo picking things up, like the customers of DraftKings picking something up, it probably has legs usually. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So that puts some pressure on you because you have an audience that expects you to be forward moving. They expect you to have cutting-edge technology, right? You can't fall behind. So it's interesting today. Everybody's talking about AI, 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 as we know. It's, it's, a, it's a real buzz topic today. And when I think about AI and how it affects your business, obviously you can have improved analytics and stuff with AI, right? You can understand your customer a little better, I'm guessing, right? And, and you can analyze customer behavior with AI. I'm guessing that you can also probably use AI to enhance your customer experience, creating feedback, right? Looking at pages people go to, their consumer behavior as they're on your sites, what they're doing and how they're doing it, etc. And then I also think about how AI could assess a game, a team, and consider weather factors and and historic factors and stadium or arena factors Mm -hmm. and even wind factors, obviously, whatever. All of these variables now creates I guess a greater artificial intelligence for predictability of games and of players and things like that. I find all of these things so fascinating, Matt, when you think about how AI can add so much, particularly to an industry that's so analytical as yours is. And then I even think when you're dealing with all of these states and compliance issues, AI I'm guessing can help with compliance at some point and all of that. So when I think about AI in your company, I'm guessing it's something that you guys are looking hard at is technologies that are going to help drive your industry in the future, I would think. Is that accurate?
1: Yeah, yeah. I
0: would characterize it as DraftKings is
1: very open to new tech, and we're very aware and very um, thoughtful about how to incorporate it in our business. Certainly no defensiveness against new technology in any way, which I think is something you see a lot with the AI and the – if you go on – Twitter or, um, read news articles about chat GPT yeah. or these different things, um, probably good 80, 90% of people view it as very bad, scared, yeah. concerned yeah. about the future, like concerned about how it might impact their job. If you're, I don't know, maybe you're a, a content creator or you're a, um, I don't know, an engineer writing code and you just finished college and you know, oh my God, am I, am I going to have a relevant set? Um, But then there's the 10, whatever, 10% of people who are like, okay, this is new tech. How does it apply to what I'm doing? And, you know, how should I be thinking about it and using it? How can I use it? Yeah. And that's really where we want to fall. You know, we want to fall in that lane of we're aware of it. We're thinking about how AI, how things like, you know, the more recent, um, like the natural language stuff, the chat GPT, how could that apply to DraftKings to improve the experience? Exactly what you said. And there's a lot of application to that, really. It seems pretty boundless. And yeah. um, some of the more obvious areas, things like um, customer support, you know, we have a tremendous amount of, like, interest in chat support, email-based support, all these different um, channels where people can get information. And, this that's, opportunity
0: really and yeah. that's opportunity for you to engage. Yeah, And That's opportunity for you to engage with your customers. So those are great touch points for you. Uh, obviously. You know, it's interesting when you talked about it, because so many people I talked to are negative at AI. So, here's the negative stuff that they say, that how AI could affect, not necessarily DraftKings, but the industry as a whole. Uh, uh, they're saying that AI-powered algorithms can be used to increase behead- betting behavior and could increase addiction in some users. I guess if, it, if an operator, and again, I'm not saying DraftKings, if an operator was irresponsible, I'm guessing they could use AI to enhance betting and possibly be responsible. So, so I'm guessing that's a possibility. And then they say AI can be used to develop sophisticated betting strategies to gain an unfair advantage over human bettors right? This could lead to a decrease in trust and confidence in the industry. And the other ones, and again, I'm not being uh, DraftKings at all. I'm just saying that these are the concerns that people have about the gaming industry as a whole. Being in Las Vegas, these are really issues for us, uh, uh, Matt, that we're concerned about. The other one is data privacy and security, of course, And job losses, of course. So you're in a great spot because you're sitting in the seat where you can say, we're only going to use AI to benefit our customer, benefit our company. We're not going to use it. And we have to protect companies like yours and industries from these negative perceptions. Do you guys think about that in AI and how it could negatively affect the industry? And how do you protect the trust and integrity when there are these factors out there that you don't control that could challenge what we do?
1: Yeah. I mean, not, not in the sense of like we don't pretend to be able to predict the future in full, A lot of the time you're better off, I think, fast following something that's known versus trying to create like a big R&D type of department to try to predict the future or invest to even develop the exact future the way that you want it. Um, You know, And you see that in a lot of industries, like a good example would be pharma, where how many pharmaceutical companies invest a lot in R&D anymore? They're really not, right? right? They're taking... Uh, it's more like government grants and things are developing the new product, and they're more focused on monetizing or building a portfolio of good stuff. And you know, in our case, it's we're not looking to invent the future in terms of AI or in terms of any of this this technology, but certainly need to be aware of the direction it's headed and how it impacts our business, how it impacts our consumer, and a couple of things that i like to think about on this front are an example would be um stock market like i'm a retail trader i think the stock market is very fun i'm also quite aware because um i'm just thoughtful about these things like i'm very aware that 90 of the market is like algorithmic trading from goldman sachs yep. or uh morgan stanley or god knows who whatever hedge fund mm-hmm. i'm very aware that there's probably like big Wall Street banker people manipulating things yep. that they have information I don't and all of this. And I don't consider that to be like a great situation for me, but I'm also, I like being in the stock market. So I do it. And, you know, it's something that, um, you know, I think about something like horse racing as well, you know, in the horse racing market, rough numbers would be 10 billion-ish of of betting handle in the US. about. Eight billion comes from API high volume betters. It's like ten people, basically. Wow, ten people are eight billion dollars of the horse racing market. Two billion is everyone else. So when you think about like, oh, horse racing, fun, U.S. pastime? Not really. I mean, right. you're. It's it's not so much, right? Technology is always changing, and I think the most important thing is for everyone to be aware of it, be aware of what's changing, and how that might change your experience. And uh, in the case of something like sports betting there's already pretty darn good models. Like we're pretty good at predicting what's going to happen in a game plus or minus like a relatively small mm-hmm. amount. Right. And you know, that's why the business exists. That's why the margins aren't 50%. It's, you know, one ten to win hundred or whatever. It's like pretty tight in terms of predictability. And even if there was some marginal change, like it become a little more precise, a little more exact, it I would be say that's it's distinct. already pretty
0: darn right. exact. Yeah. So it wouldn't be that, yeah. that's a of a change.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I've always thought of, of sports betting as it's a hobby. It's recreational people. It's the core transaction really is you're betting something for the opportunity to win more. And you know, you're paying some amount of fee, right? And a lot of games, it's exactly predictable, like casino blackjack, where, you know, the exact, yeah. if I play perfect, I know exactly In sports betting, I think a lot of people think of it as like 5%, but if I make good picks, like on average better picks, I can be better than that. But it's hard to predict exactly. You know, uh, but what I can say is I think it's already pretty darn exact, there's some level of fee when you bet and um, that concept I don't think will ever really change in the
0: customer experience. And I think so many people uh, bet on their emotions rather than the logic of those numbers, as you were saying, or home team, or something. So. I want to ask you to answer this question, but I want to know if you know. So I'm a hockey nut. We're in the Stanley Cup, as you know, Rat. Do you have a good feeling, and I won't ask you who, because I'm guessing you can't say, do you have a good feeling of who's going to win the Stanley Cup? Have you guys done those kind of analysis? And obviously you wouldn't say publicly, but do you guys do that? So are you pretty safe that you could, and I'm not going to ask you to, that you could predict the Stanley Cup winner at this point? Not
1: um, we could predict the probability of yeah. each team very accurately. Yeah. yeah. um, For example, like, uh, you know, Bruins are three to one of roughly, right? Of course, Heck of a season. Yeah. What are, I can't remember the, the golden Knights. Exactly. I think it's something like 20 to one, yeah. 25 to one, something like that. And those numbers are on the site, you know, because the way the sports book works, it's not necessarily a bid ask, right? It's, Meant to reflect the actual odds of something yeah. happening all the time. We get lopsided on something like um popular uh, Yankees are playing Kansas City Royals. New York is never betting Kansas City. You could put any number you want, yeah, right? right? But then you're going to have you just can't get somebody to ever bet that. Um However... That doesn't mean that the sports book moved the number, right? Like, we're always targeting down the middle. Like, we always want to try to get the actual odds. And the main reason for that is even though 90% of people, 95% are like casual fans who would bet on, you know, home team every single time, there's that other side of the market too who would be like all over it if there was an arbitrage, all yeah. over it if there was some kind of like consistent opportunity. And like, if you could always bet under and win or always bet the away team and win or something be doing it every day. Yeah. Yeah. And so we're really trying to give a fair experience for people who are betting for fun, like always try to shoot it down the middle, give a good experience to people that are betting for fun for recreation and just try to give the true odds, give fair Mm -hmm. odds
0: and let people pick what they want. So it's, it's getting a pretty competitive marketplace. What do you think's in the future when you look ahead? Obviously, mobile sports betting is is growing at a phenomenal rate, right? I'm guessing most of it is now on phones rather than computers. Is that accurate? Yeah, it's almost completely, you
1: know, the mobile app. Right. Most of the advertising you see would be to download, you know, go to the app store, download yep. the app. And that's the vast, vast bulk. Pretty yeah. limited in terms of, um, like, laptop, desktop, computer, like, south of 20% these days. Yeah. And then... Retail as well as retail is an interesting one. And this is probably an area that um, you might find a lot of interest, but there is a healthy audience around retail sports betting for very different reasons. Um, You know, it's it's a it's like a chosen experience that people want. They want to go in with cash, make a bet, be able to take their ticket and get their money if they win right away hang out at the bar and have some drinks with friends. Um, it's social. It's a, There's a reason that people like to go to a retail sports book. And so that whole piece, I think, a surprise for a lot of people was when mobile sports betting opened up, mobile iGaming opened up, it actually grew a lot of the retail casinos revenue as well at the same time. Yeah. And just because more people were generally interested in the category, more people had tried it out. The idea of like, oh, maybe I'll go to Atlantic City. I like playing on DraftKings. It'd be a fun trip. You know, these sort of things are happening. And
0: um, we see here one of the biggest. We see it here in Las Vegas, madam, and I mean, everybody said, well, these casinos open all over the country. Las Vegas is screwed, right? Who's going to go to Vegas when you can gamble down the street? Well, the fact of the matter is we just had 25 months of over a billion a month. So uh, it didn't affect us at all. I agree with you. What it does is it introduces people to the activity. They get comfortable with it. And then they do it in other places. They elevate. Obviously, DraftKings is great because I can start at a quarter. I can start very, very low. I can build it up. I can grow it with me. And it's approachable in every kind of a way. I think that's the genius of it is the approachability of it. Matt, it's a lot of fun to talk to you, buddy. You you, you run a great company. You know what I love about your company is your company is so based in trust. Right? I need to trust you to do business with you. And you've done such a great job creating that trust in the marketplace, being a real leader of that trust in the marketplace. That's why I was so eager to hear about the AI stuff from you. And because that is probably your greatest consumer asset is trust, I would think. Would you agree?
1: I think it. I think it is. At the end of the day, people want to know that you're getting Fair shake. fairness. You're Like if you're making a bet, you want to know that the payout, the odds are fair. You want to know that you'll receive the money or like money you're holding on the site is safe. If something comes up that you're going to be treated with some kind of liberal policy on, you know, like something exceptional happens that gave a bad experience. You want to know that the company will have your back and it'll be liberal in terms of how they address it, you know, and. It's, it's really critical. And I think a couple of things that go into trust are um, like when you mentioned things like league team athlete relationships, Those media company relationships, sure. and even just the size and the scale of the company and the social proof, yep. like there's only a couple of companies really DraftKings and FanDuel and kind of MGM who have the scale of being able to say like millions of people are playing on the platform consistently, you know, I'm getting my money, I'm getting odds right. that are fair whatever. Um, and by working with the leagues, the regulators, the teams, the athletes, everybody has skin in the game, you know um, to see this go well and to see it be successful. so um, being in the light you know, not in the the black market meaning but being in the light in the regulated world and doing things the right way that are visible, that are transparent, it doesn't mean that you do everything perfectly. It doesn't mean you do everything right all the time. We mess, we mess up stuff all the time. But well, you time.
0: do it with integrity,
1: um, but you you're transparent. You self-report things that go wrong. Yeah. You communicate clearly with the customer if something goes wrong. You know, make it right and you move on. Right, and yeah. a lot of the time, this what we call like service recovery, like the recovery from a bad experience, drives more loyalty if you do it right. I and,
0: completely agree.
1: Um, yeah, you're never striving to have problems for anyone, but when
0: you do, but you can turn them and you can create great yeah. engagement from those negative situations if you do it right. But you should be very proud of yourself. You you built a heck of a company. Uh, uh, I, I don't think there's anybody out there that does it better than you guys do, or has a better reputation, or is more consumer oriented than you do. A lot of entrepreneurs listen to this, uh, 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 and a lot of them have jobs like you did, Matt. You know, and and they're trying to build up the courage to leave that job and start their business and go out and get investor funds and everything. There's a lot going on in the world around us these days. If you're an entrepreneur who was thinking of pulling the trigger today, would you? Yeah, because I think it
1: really comes down to uh and I've as I've gotten older, I'm 41 now. When we started DraftKings, I was 29. And more than ever, I really appreciate the idea of like spending a lot of your life on something that you don't really want to be doing is generally bad. (laughs) So, you know, always, 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 I think it's, um, whether short immediate term or some kind of, you know, you know, overtime plan, being able to keep your eye on the ball of how do I really want to be spending my time for me? It's every single thing. This is my dream job. Every single thing I do every day, I love doing. And a lot of the work is very hard. There's a lot of aspects of being an executive, too, at a public company that aren't fun. Certainly not fun. Um, you know, uh, like, probably get credit for a lot of the marketing, the, um, you know, sponsorship stuff, promotional stuff, playing the game. All that is very fun. But then you have these other pieces of, you know, finance, legal, compliance, whatever. Like, you name it, uh, HR stuff that sometimes can be unpleasant, etc. Lots of aspects that aren't, but at the end of the day, I'm doing the job I want to be doing and that's how I'm spending my days and I go home and I spend time with my family and I love that. I have a really balanced life that I enjoy a lot and I never felt that way in corporate America. And even if I wasn't, you know, if this wasn't a successful venture, if it wasn't something that earned money uh, for me, if I started over again two years after, because it was a failure, wouldn't have regretted a single thing right really truly wouldn't and um and there was times too where maybe like four or five years in where our stock was worth nothing it really truly was you know and tenacity buddy years of work zero sort of financial gratification and we came in every day and we were happy to be doing what we're doing and i think that's the most important thing is to put some value on um it's more than just money sometimes it's more than security People like will literally wilt away on this idea of security, like wilt away their entire life. And how is that worth it? It's not like it's absurd. The idea of just for security to um, to just like let years and years and years go by and something you're not happy with. So a little bit of risk. Well, I think the most expensive
0: thing we have is time, right, buddy? So so that time is critical. I'm going to guess you're going to agree with what I say and I'm going to let you go after this. You know, I always believed that in, in life we never regret the things we did. We regret the things we didn't do. When I look back over my life. And you know, I say this to the entrepreneurs that are listening. You know, Matt had an idea that he believed in. He believed in it so much that he went out, he found partners. You weren't a money raiser. That wasn't where you were at. You were in a consumer product development area. You found a money raiser partner. You found a programming partner. You've created a team that shared your vision. And together, look what you created. And I say to all entrepreneurs, you know, if you just wake up with Matt's attitude of, you know, I have one life to live. I want a balance between my family and my professional life. I want to go to work every day and love what I do then there's no reason for you not to pull the trigger. So I say it to every potential entrepreneur out there, do your homework. If you really believe in what you're doing, Matt, I know you're going to agree with me. If you believe in what you're doing, go do it. Go do it. Don't let somebody else take it away from you. I'm going to leave you with a quick story, Matt. 13 years ago, I was given a speech at a convention. Somebody comes up to me and says, John, you should be on TV. So I write this thing up, right, called... Originally, it was called On the Rocks. And I'm going to do this Mission Impossible kind of show, and it's going to be barred. And I had been a consultant to Paramount years earlier for Bubba Gum Shrimp Company. So I go to my friends at Paramount with this write-up that I got, and they say, what do you think? And they look at me, excuse my language, and they say, John, you will never fucking be on television. You're too old. You're not good-looking enough. It'll never freaking happen. So I left, and I realized... Only I can say no to me. Nobody can really say no. So I went out, created the scissor reel, put the show together. Less than a year later, it was on TV. 12 years later, one of the greatest reality shows of all time. And it started with a no. Did you get a few no's along the way?
1: vast majority of what you hear is no. I mean, for sure. Yeah. Uh, especially if you're asking for something. <laughs> yeah, <that's true. laughs> Most people, generally <laughs> speaking, are like, until you ask for something, they're pretty encouraging. And then they're like, oh, yeah. Yeah. I'll keep an eye on what you're doing. I'll, you know, nobody, that's the other thing. Nobody quite says no for the most part, you know, what you typically hear is like, oh yeah, that's interesting. Like, just keep me up to date. Keep me updated on what you're does doing, that mean, right? which really means like once somebody else validates it, then I'll jump in because right. vast majority of people are, um, and I don't think this is, I don't view this as insulting. I think it's smart in a lot of ways, but, um, the vast majority of investors, VCs are kind of like lemmings, you know? It's like if somebody validates an idea, they do all the work, they're, they're happy in. to follow. They don't even need to do the work a second time. Right. You know, they're happy to follow people that they trust. But what's hard is getting somebody to do the work and actually say yes. And pull the first like, Where's trigger. my term sheet? Where's my, yeah, where's the, the vote of support? Yeah. And so that's the work. That's where the, the persistence really needs to come from is, You're not failing if you hear no 20 times. That's the nature of of humans, and that's how the system works. It's not a failure. Like You just have to be mentally prepared that that is how it works. It's going to be extremely hard to get a lead. Um, If you're somebody lucky enough to be able to self-fund a little bit, that's great. But uh, we certainly weren't, and I don't think most people are. So if you're not, just prepare mentally for a lot of no's and don't necessarily connect that with that. It's not a good idea or not a good team
0: or whatever. That's great advice. You're a great guy, buddy. It was really fun talking to you today. You've got a great company. You should be very, very proud. Is there anything you want to plug any website or anything you want to mention to anybody that they can go to? Obviously we'll put the DraftKings uh, website on the bottom of the image here. Any other site? Do you have a site or anything that you do on social media personally?
1: Yeah, I go on social media good about a good bit. I am on Instagram, Matt or sorry, on Instagram, it's at Kalish, my last name, K-A-L-I-S-H. And I also use Twitter a good amount, and that's at Matt Kalish. And I try to put a good amount of updates of both like what's happening personally as well as with the company. And um, always something new going on for sure. I'd say a couple of interesting things happening pretty soon this year are... We're launching a couple of really big retail sportsbooks, one on uh, the outside of Wrigley Field in Chicago. Wow. If you go there today, like if you went to a Cubs game, you would see it. Um, DraftKings Sportsbook. It'll be a really, I think, iconic location. Obviously, like the idea of building something at such a storied stadium was oh, a big deal. And yeah, the, the Rickett family and everybody, huge supporters of the company, really got behind this. And I think it'll be a great you know, physical manifestation of of what we do and the type of experience that we want. Uh, and then another one down at TPC Scottsdale, if you're a golfer, you know, Arizona is a great market for sports betting. And uh, our partnership with the PGA, we're launching a giant venue down there as well. So I think you'll start to see a little bit more of that, like these really nice flagship sports betting locations. And uh, even though the vast majority of our business is online, we do understand the importance of that. And I'll probably call you after the fact and and pick your brain on some of these things like our strategy there. Yeah. Some of the, uh, I don't know. I think it's a great brand. A lot of well, people you're going think DraftKings
0: was a, a beer at one point. Yeah. You're going into what I would call LBE, location-based entertainment. And you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's a great opportunity for you to pull in a whole new customer audience to create spontaneous connectivity, et cetera. That's really exciting, buddy. I wish you a lot of luck with it. Matt. Absolutely. This was a lot of fun, buddy. I look forward to meeting you one of these days. Yeah. Sooner the better. I'll talk to you soon. Take Take care. care.